0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Three C A Three C R pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise that sovereignty has never been ceded. This
0: is Three C R Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis, Wrap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, seven am to oh, late 30 am.
2: Early double.
3: Wrap your hands.
2: Move.
1: You may remember last week we interviewed Freya from the Mapping Melbourne Festival. That was here on Monday Breakfast 3CR. Uh, This week we have photographer, artist and dancer Gregory Lorenzuti in the studio to talk to us about his exhibition of photographs. It's called Balimbing Filipino Queerness uh, and that's part of the Mapping Melbourne Festival. Very happy to have Gregory in the studio today. How are you?
2: I'm good. Good morning, Will.
1: Good morning. Um, So, uh, Gregory, you're part of the LGBTIQ community and you engage with um, the community through your art. Can you tell us a bit about the, um, the, the photography exhibition?
2: Well, this work started um, quite some time ago, um, precisely three, three years ago. Um, I went for the first time to the Philippines to work with two Australian artists uh, under a commission by um, Queensland Art Gallery. Mm -hmm. Um, to to make a movie, um, an art installation. And um, so that was Justin Scholder and Ben Girard, And so they took me as a still photographer to work with them. And actually, I offered myself to do the job. (laughs) They they didn't have, they have a whole crew, Filipino crew, to do the filming, but they didn't have a still photographer. And then I said, well, that's my job. <laughs> so <laughs> you put your hand up and you went along. Yes. <laughs> and, um,
1: so so this was in
2: 2015. Yes, was that right. Yeah, and it's correct. right.
1: It was only a year and a half after Typhoon Haiyan, and you went to what region did you go to?
2: Uh, it was called Tacloban City. Yeah.
1: So that was one of the hardest hit areas. It was actually the hardest. Mm.
2: Yeah. The eye of the storm was straight into the city.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And so there was still quite a bit of... um. You could still see the signs everywhere. Everywhere. So, yeah. Like
2: the uh, Although it was like a year and a half, but things in the Philippines take so long to mm. to keep going and, you know, for the recovery of the city. Mm. So all these cars and there was like rubble and destruction everywhere. Like I remember one of the most striking scenes. Um, so a friend of mine, which is, I met a friend there, a local, and he was taking me to walk along the city, and he took me along the bay, and there was this massive, huge pile of cars, like on top of each other, wow. like a wall. And I was like, and I immediately thought about this is he was like, yeah this is the cars they were collecting along the city, and just piling here and using now as a wall you know, along the water for mm. the next one.
1: Wow, To protect incredible. us, yeah. Yeah, and you also happened upon um, a, a ship which has now become a, a monument, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah,
2: that was the... Uh, the
1: Yolanda Monument. It's, yes, yeah. it's
2: called... But the, the ship is called Eve um, Jocelyn, mm. and it was actually the last ship because it was one area. It's actually um, what how that region does to do with typhoons because they mm. have, like, many, many typhoons every year. Mm. So they, once they announced there's a typhoon coming, there's a port in Tacloban City, which is quite like a big city for the area. The region's mm-hmm. the main city. So they move all the ships along, like make a line, and to to use as like a barrier, you know, mm-hmm. to protect with water and wind. Mm-hmm. But for Haiyan, that didn't work. That actually made it worse because yeah. the wind was so strong. They dragged all the ships ashore. Mm-hmm. So they came actually as a like a like a. a like a, a role like just like coming into the communities like this whole shit, like massive container ships okay, really. terrifying yeah terrifying and so
1: even even amongst the wreckage though um there was the fiesta of santo nino can you tell us about what you found when you when you happened upon that
2: I, well, I couldn't believe actually um so as i was walking the city and there was this um along the water was this big like concrete area it used to be like a arena but was mm. completely destroyed but they still using that when I went there. So I saw like I'm three hundred uh, around thirty five people rehearsing, like dancing. And I was like, what's going on here? And then I thought maybe something's cool. And then I sat there and was just watching them. And then they Philippine, they can be quite curious. They want to know who you are, where you come where you came from and they start talking to you. So they came to me and I started talking to them. I'm like, cool, what are we doing here? Because I'm a dancer. So I saw you dancing. What's happening here? And it's like, "Oh, this is for the F- Santonino Fiesta." And I was like, "Oh, tell me about it." So they start talking to me about it. I was like, "Oh, that's very interesting." And as they were talking to me, I thought, like, "Ooh, this seems feels like I've seen this before. Where I was born." So like, I, I've seen this sort of mm-hmm. manifestation, public gathering, mm-hmm. it, towards like a, a saint, a patron mm-hmm. of the city. So for me, it was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, being from Brazil, you're familiar with Carnival, um, yeah. and you, um, in our a, pre- a previous conversation we had, you kind of compared the the color and the artistry. But there's a there's a significant difference, isn't there, between the parade of Santo Nino and Carnival? What what was that difference that you noticed?
2: Well, it's interesting. Um, Carnival there is nothing to do with faith or yeah. any religion in Brazil. Yeah. Um, it's actually sometimes you have. Clashes in between, you know, religions, um, institutions in Brazil and carnival uh, uh, organizers, because of many reasons. Carnival, Brazilian carnival, is it's a force, you know, and drives a lot of people and not to follow any rule. Mm. So it's the moment in Brazil when everything is suspended and you can do anything Mm. and everything. Exactly, you're just encouraging people to be who they are. With no social um, judgmental parameters, mm. um, and but in the Philippines, um, although I saw this incredible force and the same gathering energy, the parade of Lies, the big one that happens every year in Tacloban, it goes ar- like around the whole city. So people, every single council has like a group of people dancing in that parade across the whole city. It's like uh, along the streets. So it's the whole city stops wow. to see that, and it goes for a whole like one day and one night.
1: Yeah. and at the center of this um this parade, you found um the LGBTIQ community representing very strongly, didn't you?
2: Which I saw as which also happens in Brazil mm. because the mm. force also behind ca- Brazilian carnival, especially in Rio, where mm. I came from. Mm. Um, the LGBTQI community is the driving force, the creative force behind Mm -hmm. the party, you know, with all the artists working behind and the craftspeople. They are, not all of them, of course not, but there's a huge um, number Mm -hmm. of members of that community working Mm -hmm. for Carnival. Mm -hmm. And that I saw as well in the Philippines. Um, And I was really intrigued by that because of the visibility. Because Mm -hmm. I have a thought like, oh, that's going to happen because it's a religious party mm-hmm. gathering celebration they're going to work for the parade but they're gonna not going to be in the parade they're going to be hidden somehow mm-hmm. you know not going to get any visibility mm-hmm. and for my surprise they were all there yeah, parading not? Mm. Yep. Right and the not pretending to be what, what they wasn't mm-hmm. what they weren't mm-hmm. they were actually being wh- who they are and does that
4: happen every year during this festival? Or do you think there was an element of the trauma of the tsunami drawing people into being...
2: There was... Um, the year that I went, um, it was a year and a half after oh, the after so. But the year before, we didn't have... They did have a party, uh, a gathering, but it was so much smaller mm-hmm. because they were absolutely um, traumatized and no... Even, like, no way you could organize a city. They were Mm. just trying to clean up the streets. Mm. Yeah. So the second year, actually, the year that I was there, um, was actually when they did the first parade as they used to. Mm. So it was a huge commotion. Like, Mm -mm. everyone was absolutely, like, um, taken by the whole experience because for the first time they could actually celebrate the saint Mm. as they used to. So... It was quite strong to see that. And the LGBT community um, was there, like, absolutely taking control, let's say, you know, for the whole thing. It was, for yeah. me, remarkable. Mm.
1: Fantastic. And so you were compelled as a photographer to to document this, and you've got the exhibition limping Filipino Queens, which yes. is a... Uh, Opening on the thirteenth, is it twelfth? The twelfth, the twelfth. 12th, sorry, yeah, yeah, that's next Tuesday, twelfth. That's right. Yeah, um, and it's it's free entry.
2: Exactly, as well. it's free. So, um,
1: well, let's talk about the launch though, because that yeah. sounds really exciting. So, you you spoke earlier about um, Benji Ra and Justin's Shoulder, who um, who really brought you to to the Philippines. They're going to be performing at exactly. the opening as well, which is fantastic, isn't it?
2: Well, that yeah. was something when I. Um, in my conversations with Multicultural Arts Victoria, mm. which is the presenter mm-hmm. of the exhibition, I I thought about like well, I think it makes the ho- whole sense for me this work, this exhibition is about resilience, gender mm. gender fluidity mm. and acceptance and tolerance um, and how about um, to bring those artists that show me that first first time mm. you know, and yeah. And they are incredible Australian with Filipino background, both of them. And also I brought Caroline Garcia. Mm -hmm. So there's a trio um, that's coming to perform only for the opening night. So if people want to see an incredible, um, um, like unmissable experience, that's the only chance. (laughs)
1: That's right, and so there'll also be a meet the artist before the um before the ex. Well, I mean at the beginning of yeah. the the evening. So that's from five p.m. A meet the artist, and it's uh, facilitated by the editor of Dumbo Feather, and it's supported by Midsummer Festival. So it's definitely something that sounds like a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of color, a lot of light, yeah, um, which reflects the the parade. And that's uh, again just to repeat to everyone: it's Tuesday, the twelfth of December, starting at five p.m. And that's going to be. Uh, held at uh, Temperance Hall, which is 199 Napier Street in South Melbourne. So definitely turn up to that. Gregory Lawrence, Lorenzutti, thank you so much for coming into 3CR to tell us about the exhibition and best of luck.
2: Terrific pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, nice thank you. to meet
4: you. Nice to meet you. Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now. Do you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR. Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important. Community is important. Community radio is
0: very, very important. And you are a winner. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in.
5: Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Now we're going to be joined by Amelia Young, who's a Victorian Campaigns Manager of the Wilderness Society, to have a chat to us about what's happening with forestry and forest issues in Victoria at the moment. Amelia, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us.
0: That's a pleasure.
5: Now, we just wanted to um, perhaps start a little bit with, you know, what's happening in Victoria with uh, forestry issues and the campaigns to save old growth forests. And if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction to the listeners about what the Wilderness Society is doing at the moment and the kind of issues that are facing Victoria.
0: Sure, of course. So under the um, Labor Andrews State Government, logging continues in high conservation value forests across eastern Victoria. And this includes the forests of the Central Highlands, which is where endangered animals like the Leadbeater's possum and the Greater Glider and the little tiny native fish, the barred Galaxus, live. And they're all negatively impacted by the clear-fell logging regime that the State Government Logging Agency, Vic Forest, conducts. And the central highlands forest ecosystem itself, the Mount Ash Forest, is actually internationally listed as critically endangered. So we've got this extraordinary situation where in a wealthy developed nation like Australia, we have a state government still logging the endangered, uh, the habitat of a critically endangered animal and that habitat itself is critically endangered. And then further to the east in East Gippsland, out near the border with New South Wales, logging still continues in very important old-growth forests and also in rainforests as well. So the Wilderness Society has been working hard for a few years now to develop up conservation reserve proposals, and many of your listeners would be familiar with the Great Forest National Park proposal. And this proposal is a vision for a different forest management system in these forests that are just on Melbourne's doorstep drive for about 90 minutes and you're in the heart of the proposed Great Forest National Park. And this reserve design was developed after extensive consultation with a whole range of different scientists, people who are expert in what wildlife needs, but also people who are expert in bushfire and bushfire (coughs) mitigation, and also water scientists and hydrologists, because of course these forests provide all of Melbourne's clean and fresh drinking water. But every second, over a thousand litres of water is lost to Melburnians because of Dick Forest native forest logging regime.
5: Wow, yeah, that's a really great um, introduction to talking about the topic, and I think we can see, yeah, it's not that far out of our kind of the skyscrapers of the city that we see the great forests and what they provide for all of us. What what is the like, what, how is the government, like the Andrews government you mentioned, and the way that they're kind of tackling these issues, how has is that kind of differed from previous governments?
0: Well, that's a really good question, because the Andrews state government was elected on a promise in 2014 to convene a task force which would bring together the key stakeholders interested in the management of Victoria's native forests, and indeed directly affected by the management of Victoria's native forests. And the Wilderness Society was part of these roundtable negotiations for a couple of years where we sat down with the forestry division of the CFMEU and also the uh, senior managers of the largest native forest logging organisations. And these include companies like the Nippon-owned Australian paper, paper factory, which is at Maryvale in Gippsland, and also the management of the Hayfield sawmill, which some of your listeners would have heard about, this beleaguered sawmill has actually just been bought by the Andrews State Government. They've taken the extraordinary step of spending $50 million of public money buying a sawmill that no-one else wanted. And this is a sawmill that mills critically endangered timber from the Mountain Ash Forest and is in large part responsible for the destruction that's happening across this forest estate. Unfortunately, the task force process while it made some initial headway, was scuttled because of short-term concerns. And for conservationists, our concerns really centred around the ongoing logging. So while we were sitting at the table striving to reach a negotiated outcome and reach agreement about a durable pathway forward to end this multi-decade conflict around managing Victoria's native forests, the logging continued apace. There was no reduction in logging. So the impact on the forest was absolutely huge and continues to this day. And for the industry, they became increasingly nervous about the expiration of their wood supply contracts because, of course, these private businesses have contracts with the state government for Vig Forest, the state government logging agency, to provide them a set amount of wood from these publicly owned native forests.
5: And one of the things you mentioned there was about the CFMEU or the union kind of involvement, and I guess it's often billed as this union versus the Greens kind of debate, and that you know I think that it's it's a really interesting kind of dynamic that needs to be I guess resolved in some kind of way. And you spoke about the Wilderness Society and the unions kind of you know being at the table trying to negotiate something here, but how do, I mean I guess yeah how does that kind of play out in practical terms in terms of finding a solution that you know, everyone can kind of move forward with, I guess?
0: Mm. Well, it's certainly the case that jobs in regional Victoria are critically important, but native forest logging is a little bit like the coal industry. It belongs in the 20th century, not in the 21st century. And job numbers have continued to, to decline, no matter what the investment or the subsidy or the legal breaks that are provided to the native forest logging industry. So we need to be really clear-eyed about the jobs numbers. There are 485, if that's jobs, direct jobs in native forest logging right across eastern Victoria. That includes the Central Highlands and East Gippsland. And 115 of those jobs are Vic Forest employees, so they're forest managers. So we're not talking about tens of thousands of jobs here. We're not even talking about thousands of jobs. And those hundreds of jobs are very important for families living in regional Victoria. But at the end of the day, the wood is running out. These forests have been so badly managed and so overlogged for decades now. And, of course, in 2009, the tragic Black Saturday bushfires burnt more than 70,000 hectares of the Mountain Ash Forest estate. So all of the resource analyses show that to continue logging at the current rates will mean that the mountain ash wood resource is completely liquidated. That's looking at it from an industry perspective. From a social or conservation perspective, that pressure will also lead to the collapse of the ecosystem with many, many effects and negative impacts for all Victorians, in fact, because we rely on these forests not only for our clean, fresh drinking water but also to modulate the climate of Melbourne These forests are Melbourne's ecological cradle and as we head towards dangerous climate change, one of the best things we can do is actually leave these forests intact to remain very safe and secure stores of carbon. Trees are still the only known, proven, safe and reliable and cost-effective technology that we have available to us to draw down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yet here in Victoria... We're continuing to log them, and primarily for wood chips as well. More than 90% of what's pulled out of the forest is pulped for paper products like reflex copy paper or cardboard boxes that are used for online shopping. So we're not even value-adding to these very, very precious, critically endangered forests. And the jobs that are involved in the industry are coming at a huge environmental cost, but also a huge social and economic cost because not Any other industry can coexist with native forest logging, whereas other industries that are forest-related, like managing for carbon and water, like tourism, like creating national parks, recreation and conservation management, all of these industries can coexist, indeed, as does agriculture. Victoria's farmers rely on these forests for their water as well. The rivers that flow north, off the Great Dividing Range out of the mountain ash forests of the central highlands are actually the headwaters for the Murray River system. So the impact on downstream users is huge in agriculture. All of these other industries can coexist, but logging continues to the great disbenefit of all of those industries and indeed all Victorians. So a viable pathway forward when it comes to people involved in the industry is to transition the industry out of native forests and into the plantation estate and recycled fibre. And where employment changes arise because of changes in the industry, of course there must be proper support extended to workers who need to transition into other industries.
5: And what can our listeners do to find out a bit more about what the Wilderness Society is doing, the campaigns, or try to get involved themselves, Amelia?
0: Sure. So one of the first things people can do is find out more about the paper products they're using and make sure they're avoiding products that are manufactured from Victoria's native forests. And one way to do that is check out our ethical paper campaign. The other thing that we're asking people to do is to contact their local member of parliament. We're one year out from the next Victorian state election. After three years in office, the Andrews government has done nothing to protect Victoria's native forests. And this is despite the huge groundswell of support for the Great Forest National Park proposal, we know that more than nine out of ten Victorians want to see nature protected and support the creation of new national parks. And recently in the Northcote by-election, in the seat of Northcote here in Melbourne, we know that this issue, because it was the major environmental issue in that by-election, played a really key role and voters supported the candidate who was not only a clear supporter of the Great Forest National Park, but was actually backed by her party on the issue as well. And this was one of the major differences between the Greens candidate and the Labor candidate. While the Labor candidate warmed to the issue of the Great Forest National Park throughout the course of the by-election campaign, she wasn't backed by her party and she wasn't backed by the Premier. And unless the state government does something meaningful to protect forests and creates the Great Forest National Park, We're going to see ongoing conflict and an ongoing resolution in relation to managing Victoria's forests. So writing to your local Member of Parliament about these issues is actually an incredibly effective thing to do at this point in the electoral cycle. The third and last thing I'll mention that listeners can do is come and do some community organising training with the Wilderness Society. We're running a community organising program nationally called Movement for Life and this is about building a movement of people who will stand up for nature right across this continent and that includes Victoria's forests. And we've got a series of dates for Movement for Life training in the new year and I'd really encourage your listeners to come along and meet the organisers and campaigners, find out a bit more about the issue and do some intensive training to be able to become super active around this issue.
5: Well, thanks a lot for the interview today, Amelia. And as Amelia said then, if you want to find out more about some of the training or just a little bit more about some of the campaigns, look on wilderness.org.au site and follow through there for some of the campaigning and issues that are coming up in Victoria and nationally. Thanks a lot for joining us, Amelia.
0: Thanks for having me on your show. Have a good day. Cheers. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan
1: food.
5: Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious.
0: <laughs> Friends of the Earth
6: Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter.
4: You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855 on your radio dial with James, Will and Jackson. And it's coming up to... 750, which means we have our regular segment, uh, Over the Wall, which is a look into the barriers to social support and safety nets from the perspective of those most affected and the worker advocates who support them. Now, today's topic and for the next few weeks on Over the Wall is of a lot of interest to anyone who rents out there. Uh, if your landlord's got you down, Over the Wall is to the rescue. Uh, over the next few weeks, Duncan and Peter will be speaking to Mark O'Brien, who's from Tenants Union of Victoria, about the state government's new residential tenancy laws, and also the ins and outs of tenancy blacklists. So that will be for the next few weeks, and this is the first episode.
6: Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is episode 14 of Over the Wall. Today, we speak to Mark O'Brien, Chief Executive Officer of the Tenants' Union of Victoria about upcoming changes to the Residential Tenancies Act and, in particular, about the laws around tenant databases, sometimes called blacklists. In Australia, all matters around tenancy laws are determined by state governments. The 1980 Residential Tenancies Act was reformed and consolidated in 1997 with a new Act which now applies. This Act provided new protections for tenants as well as bringing boarding house and caravan park tenants inside the tent. Since the Andrews Labor Government was elected in 2014, there has been a long process of reviewing the current Act, looking for areas of reform. This year marks 30 years of involvement for Mark O'Brien with the Tenants Union of Victoria, of which he is now Chief Executive Officer. I sat down with Mark to run through some possible reforms. I first broached the legislative timetable of a new Residential Tenancies Act.
3: Well, there is no bill at the moment, other than the government put through a bill a couple of months ago about long-term leases. That was sort of the first tranche of the residential tenancies reforms. The second tranche was the announcements that were made about a month ago. They were just announcements. There's no legislation in Parliament for those yet. And then there's still a whole lot of options floating around that will be subject to further announcements as we understand it. So the only thing that's in Parliament at the moment is the long-term leasing regulations and bill. Is that part of it, past the legislative process or not? The Act itself was passed, but the Act is really just a vehicle to create a regulation-making power for the Minister, and the regulations haven't been done yet. So the regulations will include the standard long-term lease, and we're waiting with bated breath to see what that actually looks like. We hope it doesn't strip away rights under the Act. There is some risk that in doing a long-term lease, the government will want to give something to landlords who are offering long-term leases. We don't think taking away rights is the right way to approach it. With the proposed change in the area of long-term leases, can you give us a nutshell
6: of what you would expect in that?
3: Yeah, so it's pretty simple, really. It just creates a class of leases that are ostensibly covered by the Act, but the terms of those leases might vary a little bit from the provisions of the Act. It replaces a problem that we have now that leases of five years or more aren't covered by the Act at all. It does fix that problem, but it would be ironic if the government created a lease that was longer than five years and then took out some of the protections of the Act in order to deliver that. The whole point of this is to have all leases covered by the Act and the protections that exist for tenants in the Act. The
6: Act still could be a long way off. You'd expect it in this Parliament, I guess, at
3: least. Yeah, we certainly expect that there'll be reforms that go through the Parliament, particularly the ones that have been announced more recently, and they are a good set of reforms. Modest, but important, and at least a sort of move in the right direction for tenants. So we'd certainly expect that they'd be legislated through the Parliament next year and hopefully well in advance of the election in November.
6: Yeah, probably the one that got the most media attention was the relaxation of pet ownership laws. Are there other items that have been flagged by the government that people
3: may be less aware of? There were, I think, 13 or 14 announcements in that package. The pets one did get a good go, and it was a wide mix of things. So on top of the pets was the abolition of no-reason notices to vacate. That's a pretty important step forward those no reason notices is not widely used but they do have this kind of dampening effect on people where um, tenants think well you know the landlord can just boot you out one way or the other so I really don't feel that happy about asking for repairs or trying to negotiate something about the rent. That is an important particularly symbolic change to say we're interested in preserving security not undermining it particularly where there's no good reason. In addition to that there were some announcements about a blacklist for landlords. I think people would be familiar with tenancy databases that exist. You can be listed on those if you breach your obligations under the Act, but in some instances the landlord has to suffer a loss that's more than the bond before you can be listed. So there are some good protections for tenants around those databases that people aren't often aware of, but the existence of them has a pretty dramatic effect if you're listed you're going to really struggle to get a rented property through a real estate agent at least. So a blacklist for landlords should at least uh, balance up the scales a little bit so tenants can see landlords that particularly are just routine offenders and uh, just often breaching the act. I'm not sure if it's similar
6: in Victoria, but one of the big problems in New South Wales is that whilst the tenant is able to interrogate and change the information that's on these blacklists... They were finding that there are so many commercial operators running blacklists that you can go down a rabbit hole where it's hard just to discover what blacklists you're on and then go through the process, which involves money each time to get yourself off the blacklist. Is it a similar situation in Victoria?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple of practical problems that exist north of the border that don't exist for us. Touch wood uh, for tenants in Victoria. So, so in New South Wales, there's a significant problem where the larger operators charge a fee for you to access the information that's on the database, and so that can make it difficult for you to just get the information, let alone anything else. And they introduce, you know, barriers where the tenant was, they had to provide certain kinds of identification in order to prove that they really were the tenant who was on the database. Now, all this was a tactic to get you to cough up information to them because they're largely debt enforcement organisations. So it was just a tactic to try to extract more information from tenants. And so they've got that problem in New South Wales. It doesn't exist so much in Victoria. Having said that, there's a massive issue about the statute of limitations on those listings. The listings are supposed to lapse after three years. And as far as we're able to tell, nobody is checking where the listings are taken off after three years. And it's really not being enforced properly.
6: How do you end up on a Tennessee blacklist? Are there regulatory protections in Victoria? Mark, explain the threshold criteria under state law that could see you listed.
3: Basically, if there's an order of possession against you, Uh, and if the landlord claims bond and or compensation from you that's greater than the value of the bond itself then you can be listed for that but it's got to be specific breaches of the act and the loss has to be greater than the value of the bond i think you might also be able to be listed in some circumstances if you break the lease but the crucial bit about this is the landlord's losses have to exceed the bond
6: Okay, well that's good news because I imagine that a lot of people would think that the way these lists are run may be more casual and you may be have a black mark against you just because you're a tenant who tries to stand up for their rights or you've broken a lease in a legitimate way yeah. or, or you've just had some deductions from bond.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. It doesn't stop people being afraid of being listed and it also doesn't stop, to be honest, some agents from being jackasses and threatening people with listing in circumstances where it's not possible. So we do see examples of both of those things.
6: That's it for this week. Stay tuned for more from Mark O'Brien next week when we'll discover the huge demand and decreased funding that the Tenants Union faces the top five issues that tenants come to them with, and particular info on household repairs and rent increases. We thank Mr O'Brien for his time and his insights.
4: Our next guest is a writer, public speaker, survivor advocate, educator and activist. Tarang Trawler is passionate about changing the violent behaviour of men towards women. Unfortunately for Tarang and his family, his passion is in part driven by the fact that in 2015 his sister Nikita, just 23 years old, was murdered by her husband in an act of terrible violence. Like many of us, me and I'm sure our listeners out there, Tarang is looking to change the horrendous statistics around men's violence towards women. So during the UN's 16 days of activism to end gender-based violence, I thought he'd be a good person to talk to. Tarang, welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast.
7: Thanks for having me, Jackson.
4: Tarang, I'm going to start with a simple question. Why do you think so many men in Australia are violent towards women?
7: I think uh, men are violent towards women, not just in Australia, Jackson, but globally because of a cultural problem that we have uh, with men specifically. I don't think this has anything really to do with women so much as it has to do with the fact that men have a sense of entitlement um, over women and an inability to, um, I suppose, understand or deal with uh, complex emotions and have never been uh, given license to do that ever. And I think that... In order to stem the the tide of of violence, particularly against women by men in Australia, we need a cultural change in what it means to be a man.
4: Yeah, there was a memorable article you wrote a while back, and you described your feelings while you're looking through kind of social media comments in, online in response to calls for change, or even the way that men behave on Tinder when they're supposedly looking to form friendships or even loving relationships. I mean, you look at these comments and you think, what is wrong with my gender? And you wrote at the time, it seems men are either quietly ashamed or just plain misogynistic. How do you, in your work, attempt to change those attitudes?
7: I think uh, it's a, it's a complex problem, Jackson, in terms of changing men's attitudes, because this isn't a problem that's necessarily new, it's just a problem that um, men through organisations such as White Ribbon and others have started to take a keener interest in, and as whereas collectively, uh, you know, as a society becoming more aware of the problem, we're understanding men's contribution to it, or men's responsibility to it, I should say. And so, one of the things for me in terms of changing attitudes is creating a space where, uh, you know, all it's... it's striking a fine balance between making sure that the men are responsible for their behaviour, but they're they're also not necessarily under attack. Um, So I'm very conscious of not giving any credence whatsoever to the not all men movement, because I, I think that all men have a responsibility to change the kind of patriarchal culture that leads to violence against women, but it's creating a space for men to be able to share their feelings. And as a young man myself, I look at this issue as as broader than just the death of my sister. I look at it as, uh, you know, uh, what is the single likely most thing to kill me before the age of 45 in Australia as a man? And that's suicide. And so men are in a position where they're either harming the people that trust them and that they claim to love or themselves. So what does that say about collectively Australian men and where we are? And so it's about creating space for men to be able to handle complex emotions, to be able to understand them, and then to be able to articulate them in ways that don't lead to violence.
4: It is a balancing act, though, isn't it? Because it's it's clear to me that, you know, the path of change is not about wildly applauding any man who, you know, gets in touch with his emotions and treats women and others with dignity and respect. Surely, you know, caring and humane behaviour should be a given. You know, how as a man speaking regularly about this issue, do you navigate that terrain, you know, encouraging men to change but not unduly rewarding or focusing on those that do, you know, the phrases like champions of change or, you know, be a hero and, you know, somehow putting, you know, just, I guess, basic humanity and and care, you know, on on this pedestal?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the balance that I strike is not necessarily um, thinking that just because men speak out, myself included, that we're in some way white knights and the women uh, around this are white noise because this is actually, you know, an issue that has impacted women since the dawn of time, specifically men's violence towards them. And so we have have a responsibility as men to say something, you know, as allies. This isn't a cause that we are, you know, now here to do the heavy lifting, proverbially to, to help with. Rather, this is an issue that we've been, and I've written before, definitely quiet on for far too long. And so the way I see it is that men's responsibility is to speak up in support of women rather than necessarily being front and centre uh, and receiving credit for it. And uh, I've been critical of some of the initiatives in the past, you know, and I, and I saw you mention the, the term champions. And it's very, it's very important that, you know, um, influential male figures are um, given credit for speaking up about the issue, but they're not giving credit for... Uh, for being the uh, the sole instigators of change and unfortunately that can sometimes happen and I think what it does is it simply affirms that kind of cultural um, gender binary that we associate with women and men, that women are somehow dismissi- uh, are submissive and weak and men are strong and dominant and therefore they need to be the ones to solve the issue. I don't think they do, you know, and, and it's, time and time again we see in instances of violence and we saw it... Um, or rather we experienced it myself as a family when Nikki died, this whole patriarchy and victim-blaming culture that a lot of people were very quick to point fingers at myself, my family, at my late sister, but very few people were able to point their fingers squarely at the man who made a conscious choice to use violence. And I think that it's part of a broader issue of men getting credit for things when they don't necessarily deserve it. So while we should applaud the fact that men are speaking up about it because we live in a society where there are many men who will listen to no one other than other men, we have to be very conscious of what our end goal is here. And, and like you said, those characteristics of um, humanity and empathy and genuine care and respect for others, they're human rights. Um, and so we have to be conscious of, of articulating it in a human rights framework and not a framework of simply what suits the current agenda.
4: So on that note, we, we do have an opportunity now. We're in the middle of these 16 days of activism. And again, we see a lot of material about awareness raising. I feel like every time we, we hear in the media that men have been behaving t- t- terribly, committing violent acts against women, it's described as shocking or as a revelation. How do we move from being perennially aware to actively changing behaviour?
7: I think it's a great question. And I think... Uh You know, we've seen we've seen some of the larger organizations in this space such as White Ribbon start to change some of their terminology. So for example, their their oath previously used to be I will not excuse or remain silent about men's violence against women. And now they've changed it to be I will speak up and act to prevent violence against women. And broader, I think it's about being mindful of what awareness Raising does, you know, and I think that in some sense it promotes, promotes vanity and it's a little vacuous because awareness raising doesn't lead to change. I know that I meet so many, you know, victim survivors of family violence, either women or their families or related victims. And I know that when one woman a week is killed or one in three from the age of 15 experiences violence, that it's not too far removed from anyone's reality Australia and so I don't think that the slacktivism and awareness raising is necessarily going to solve any problems and I think it's about
4: I'm very sorry I'm going to have to cut you off we are out of time I think it's a really interesting conversation I'd like to go into more detail about it in the future with you particularly around toxic masculinity and how that uh, enters uh, this, this conversation but I want to thank you very much for joining us this morning I know you're busy and I hope we can talk again in the future
7: absolutely thanks Jackson thanks
4: Tarang